Please be seated, and let's turn to Second John tonight. Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we find ourselves nearing the end of our second journey through the Scriptures in Second John tonight. Someone has observed that at 13 verses, it's um, a little more a postcard than it is a letter. And, uh, but, you know, God doesn't need a lot of room to say what he wants to say, and he can say a lot in 13 verses. Second John was probably written about uh, shortly after First John was written, so somewhere about they, uh, the best experts, you know, guess somewhere between 85 and 95 AD, which is interesting to us if we if we look at it in the in the context of the time of Jesus's life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, which occurred in about 33 AD. So we're looking at a, a period of about um, 50 to 60 years following Jesus's death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. So it gives us an idea of how much history has gone by now and uh, kind of what that early church is now dealing with. He begins, John does here in, in this letter, the way that Paul and uh, Peter did and, and uh, all of those that wrote letters in ancient times. The model is basically the same. Because the letters were written not on sheets of paper, but written on scrolls, and you would need to unscroll it, uh, they didn't sign their letters at the end of their letters because you'd have to unscroll all the way to the end to begin to know who in the world wrote this letter to me. And that's important to us, isn't it, at the front end? So they would identify themselves at the beginning of their letters instead of at the end of the letters. And uh, then he w typically that would be followed by talking about who the letter was written to, uh, and then a word of greeting. And John follows that same model. He identifies himself as the writer, kind of cryptic, but we'll talk about it a little bit, when he declares, the, the writer declares himself and uh, speaks of himself as the elder. And uh, we know that John is uh, the writer of uh, second John because in terms of content, in terms of style, in terms of the word usage, in, in terms of tone, the subject matter that's being dealt with, it's completely identical with first John where he clearly identifies himself as, as the letter of, uh, as the writer of that particular letter. It's interesting that he refers to himself as the elder. Uh, there's uh, some speculation sanctified speculation to be sure about just what that means because it can mean a couple of things one of the offices in uh, a church is the office of an elder it is a spiritual office a spiritual position that God calls uh, men to in order to oversee the spiritual direction and health of, of a church so there's that office of, of the elder, and uh, some people look and say, well, John is, is writing here from the office of an elder, and, and that's why he begins this way. But the word is e equally applies to an older person, someone who is an elder. They are, they are elderly. And uh, uh, John, by ancient, uh, you know, way of, of age and those kinds of things, he is very much an older man for ancient times. He is somewhere between 70 and 80 years at the time of, of the writing of this letter. So he could just be writing it affectionately. It does appear to be a personal kind of correspondence in one way of looking at it, and, uh, and so he identifies himself as, as the older man. And of course, in that culture, you know, today, the older we get, the more marginalized we get by this culture. That did not happen and does not happen in Middle Eastern or Eastern culture. Uh, the older you get, the greater the authority that you have in the eyes of, 
of your family and these kinds of, of things. They are more highly esteemed in those cultures. We in the West, this is a renegade kind of culture in terms of, of the history of the world where uh, the highest esteem is given to those that haven't quite earned it yet and that is the youngest within, within the culture. They're not to be trusted with it yet. The older I get, the more I believe that. And so I'm just waiting for an amen, really, kind of on that. Okay, there we go. All right, well. So I may just, you know, prime the pump all night uh, in, in that kind of way. Now, um, John, when he writes uh, this particular letter, he's the last living apostle at this point. All of the other apostles have uh, died a martyr's death for their faith and their faithfulness to the ministry that God has called them to. John alone is alive. He is the last link to someone having uh, heard the teaching of Jesus among the apostles personally, having watched the miracles uh, personally. It isn't that uh, there was that John has been living a life free of persecution, and the other eleven were persecuted more heavily, and thus than John was, and thus they were martyred, and, and John survived. There were attempts made upon John's life. In fact, according to church um, history, the Roman emperor Domitian. Uh, attempted to have John boiled in oil, boiled alive in oil in order to uh, kill him. It was an unsuccessful attempt on, on his life. John's ministry wasn't over with yet. And uh, so Domitian had him exiled to the island of Patmos for which we give him thanks. Really, we don't give him much thanks uh, because the Lord works all things together for good because it was on the island of Patmos that he then receives the vision that we know to be the book of Revelation, which we're going to get to in, in uh, just a little bit. And so there were attempts made on his life, but God in his will for John's life, he was to live a long life and also uh, to die a natural death. So this elder could refer to his office within the church. It could refer to his, uh, to his age. I am inclined to believe that it refers to his age and the esteem that was attached to that uh, in those days because I think if he was going to go ahead and pull an office out as a means of introducing himself, he would not use elder but apostle. But we can all agree to disagree related to that. It has no bearing upon uh, the single great lesson of this particular letter. Now notice who he writes to. He writes to the elect lady and her children. So when this is when he uh, he writes to an, the, the uh, to the elect lady. Elect is a reference to the fact that she is a Christian. Uh, all Christians are elected unto salvation. I'm not going to venture into that. I'll refer to you to other tapes related to God's uh, election and uh, human responsibility. But she is clearly. As he writes to this elect lady, uh, she is clearly uh, a Christian, and, and then here she is, he refers to her children. Now, there's a lot of theories about who this elect lady was, and uh, there are a lot of people who believe that she was a literal woman with children that, that uh, John wrote this letter uh, to. But there are many others who look at this particular letter and they don't believe that John was writing to a literal woman, but that he was writing to a church, which he is referring to in figurative language as the elect lady, in the same way that sailors uh, even today will refer to their boats as she. You know, sometimes they'll say, she's ready to sail, Captain, you know. A-E-I-O-U. I can never resist that. That's pirate talk. Every vowel sounds like a pirate uh, thing on that. But sometimes you, you do that. I remember when I was a boy and I was first exposed to that. Why in the world do you call this boat uh, by, you know, the female uh, pronouns on things? But that is, oh, that's just what you do, you know. And so to speak of the church in, in female terms is not foreign to the New Testament where uh, in the New Testament the church is regularly referred to as the bride of Christ and so those that look at it that way they then say that the elect lady refers to uh, a group of Christians uh, it speaks of a local church and then her children refers then to the members of that church now 
uh, I'm inclined to believe that John is not referring to a literal lady. Again, it doesn't really matter uh, what position you want to take, but I want you to be educated a little bit related uh, to this. But I believe he's writing to a local church for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, in verse 13, when he closes it, the children of your elect sister uh, greet uh, you. He closes the letter that way. And it would be highly unusual for a greeting to be extended uh, from her nieces and nephews and, and not her sister uh, herself, uh, who also must be a Christian and must be alive by virtue of the fact that she is referred to as the elect. That closing is very, very awkward if it's talking about a literal person. You would, you would refer then by the sister, the sister would greet, and then also the children of, of the sister. But that's not what, what happens there. And, and, and thus I think your elect sister in verse 13, it refers to the church that John is writing from and uh, the children of that church being, the children being referred to in verse 13, referring to the members then of the church that he was overseeing. And so that greeting in verse 13 makes more sense that way. Additionally, it isn't, um, uh, you know, improbable that, that John would refer to the church in, in figurative language rather than by name instead of saying to the church it's such and such a a city and, and and all because this letter is written at a time when tremendous persecution is being uh, uh, meted out against the church and for this letter if it had been written to an actual uh, church in a particular city, especially as John uh, writes about their great effectiveness for the kingdom of God, how highly they are esteemed, and then this letter falls into the hands of Roman officials. The persecution against them is a government-sanctioned persecution at this time. It would just give ammunition. It would identify an effective part of the body of Christ to then be uh, attacked then by, by the Roman uh, officials. And so it, it isn't inconceivable that the figurative language is used in that way to protect their identity and thus to protect their safety. Now, once again, whether you think it's a literal lady and her children uh, or whether you think it's a church and the members that make up that church, that's all interesting speculation for some of us, uh, but it, it doesn't, what you believe about that, again, has no bearing uh, upon uh, the, the great truth that, that John is wanting to bring out through this letter. So he writes to the elect lady and to her children, uh, and he declares, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. So he encourages this woman and, and her family or this local church and, and the members of that church, he encourages them in how much they are loved by the body of Christ. And, and remember now, they're, they're in the middle of tremendous persecution. And John's just going to come alongside them and let them know, no, we haven't forgotten about you out there. Uh, we know you're paying a tremendous price to stay faithful to God's, to God's Word. And I just want you to know how much it means to me and how much it means to everybody who loves the Word of God and loves the Lord the way that you do. And that goes a long way. An expression of love toward a person in, in that kind of, of a place. And, and so he knows the power of love. He's the apostle of love. He didn't begin that way. He liked to call fire down from heaven if he had his way in the early days. But uh, the Spirit of God and age can temper us a little bit. And, and so he expresses his love, whom I love in truth. And when he refers to this love that he has for them in truth, it refers to the truth of the Word of God as revealed in the Scriptures. So it is a love that's centered upon the Word of God. It is a Christian love that he is extending uh, toward them. Now here he is. He is a male uh, and in a very modest culture, and he is also um, uh, an apostle. And uh, so if he is writing to a literal woman here, he, he, he wants to express his love and appreciation, but he wants to make absolutely sure that it's understood that it is a Christian love that is based on the truth that he is extending uh, to her. Every once in a while I'll get a letter from someone 
and uh, uh, some uh, by a woman, and uh, they'll want to say something nice and uh, some word of encouragement or appreciation or something like that. And it isn't unusual at all for the the letter to be signed uh, "Love in Christ," so and so. And, uh, and, and they're absolutely clear that I am, in reading the letter of encouragement, that, that I am not going to think that they're writing me a love letter, but it's just appropriate from one sex to the other, love in Christ. Now, there are some uh, in this body that they'll write a letter, it's encouraging and that kind of thing, and they'll just, uh, a woman will just write love in their name. But uh, each one of those uh, two or three, they're like my mom in this congregation, you know. So, uh, so I just look at them as moms, and moms get to do that kind of thing. So, but here is, is John as he, he writes this. He's letting them know, I love you with a Christian uh, love, a love based upon uh, their mutual love for the Word of God and for the God of, of that Word. And then he lets them know, uh, and not just uh, only I, but also all those who have known the truth. And he lets them know there's a lot of people who love you out here. Isn't it, it's interesting how sometimes you have to wait till your funeral to hear uh, who loves you in life, doesn't it? And it's too late. <laughs> You're up around the throne now. It's a little bit of a letdown. Now they're going to tell you and all. And uh, so sometimes we're, we do that in this culture, and it, it's good. Uh, he just lets them know, I just want you to know there's a whole bunch of people out here who appreciate what you're doing, and you're loved by the rest of, of, of the body uh, of Christ. They notice what you're doing. And, and, of course, that, again, is a very, very good thing to, to, to let people know. I, we see what you're going through. We appreciate your faithfulness in it. We love you uh, for it. And then he says, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us Forever, So this love is because of the truth that was abiding both in her or in the church and in them. This love came out of a mutual faith in, in the Word uh, of, of God. They, each of them had this deep abiding, uh, the, the Word of God had this deep abiding place in each of their hearts and in their lives. And that's what it came from. Abiding is a favorite uh, word of John, and uh, and so he uses it there. And he speaks about this truth, uh, and, and not only which abides in us, but will be with us forever. And this, this love based upon the truth of God's Word is going to be a forever love that we have for one another in the body of Christ. Why? Because that Word's going to outlive the heavens and the earth. Jesus said, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my Word will never, ever pass away. And... Uh, it is, it is so easy to love other Christians who have allowed God's Word to take a deep abiding place in, in, their, in their lives. And so he expresses uh, the love. And then he greets and he says, uh, as was common in those days, grace, mercy, and peace uh, be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So uh, grace, he declares upon them, grace is charis. It means unmerited, undeserved favor. So he would be saying, uh, in essence, grace, if you said it was the Gentile or the Greek greeting one to another, you'd say, hey, see somebody, and you'd say, instead of have a great day, you'd say grace to them. Have a day that's better than you deserve. That's what grace is. Uh, is, is unmerited, undeserved favor in my life. Mercy is a little bit different than grace. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. So if grace is, may you have a better day than you deserve, mercy is saying, may you not have the day you do deserve. <laughs> That's covering all the bases. But, and, and then he talks about peace and, of course, the, the uh, great greeting among uh, the Jews in those days and in, even today was to pronounce peace upon one another. That's how they would greet one another, peace, peace, shalom. This is the, the Greek equivalent for it here. And so he unites the, the common Greek and, and, uh, and Jewish greeting of the day to, to make it the greeting uh, in the letter. Always, and here John follows, because it's the same spirit that's inspired all of them in writing the letter, 
Always, always the grace and the mercy in these greetings comes before the peace. Because it is only as I know the grace of God and the mercy of God that I will know the peace of God. When I understand that He deals with me on the basis of grace and on the basis of mercy, then I can have peace in this relationship with God. If I think that He deals with me on the basis of something else, my works, my merit, my whatever, there is no peace now in the relationship. And so to get this thing goofed up or backwards, that's why it's never the other way around in the Scripture. Because it doesn't work practically that way. And that's why grace and mercy and peace, and grace and mercy always precede the peace in these greetings. Now notice where the grace and the mercy and the peace comes from. It comes from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He couples, Father and Son are coupled together in a way that makes them obviously equal. If we were to say grace, uh, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father and uh, Damien Kyle. It's like driving off a cliff. There's such a big difference. Who? who, who? Damien who? You know. So, but he's talking about grace, mercy, and peace coming equally from two persons because they, they are equal. And, uh, and, and so that's, sometimes we think of Jesus. So he's the one that's got the grace and the mercy and, the, and then we can have the peace. No, it comes from the Father too. They're all the same. They're both, they're both the same. They're both, both one. And, and, and he declares that um, grace and mercy, peace will be with you from God the Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. And so grace, mercy, and peace, that comes from the Father, but it is fully experienced as we live a life of, of truth or obedience and love. Now one of the interesting things about verse 3, John now in his old age uh, most often in these uh, introductions to the letters, like when Paul writes and all, most often he says, um, you know, uh, grace and, he'll say, may grace and peace be with you, that, that kind of a thing. And he's, he's, he's pronouncing it as a desire that it would be upon them. Here is John in his old age, and he just pronounces it upon them. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. <laughs> There are some things that uh, are better about getting old. They're all, uh, they all, they're all spiritual, but they are, good, they are good things. And one of the things that happens about getting older in the things of the Lord is your confidence in the grace and the mercy of God and the confidence in the faithfulness of God. How wonderful it is to walk with the Lord for a long time and then to talk with someone who's 14 years old or 24 years old or 34 or 44 or 54 years old and it looks like the end of the world to them and you can look at them and say, grace and mercy is going to take you through. There's, there, there's no question about it. People, God's people have been in the fix that you're in for 2,000 years like this, and God's been faithful. You just relax. Grace and mercy's going to take you through, and you just can pronounce it authoritatively into their life. And, and He has that kind of, of confidence, and, and it's wonderful what a history with God uh, produces within us that kind of confidence that we can then uh, impart to others. And then he begins now the body of the letter in verse 4. And, uh, and the body of the letter here is the point of it that he's going to make to them is that they need to walk in truth and love, but they need to make sure that their love is governed by truth. That's the point he's going to make in this whole letter. Absolutely give yourself to both love and truth, but make sure your love is always governed by truth, otherwise it'll cease to be love. That's the point he's going to drive home. Now, in those days, there were a lot of uh, traveling preachers and, uh, and, and evangelists and pastors. They're moving all around that part of the Middle East taking the gospel and, and teaching and establishing churches and, and, and all of this. 
And they didn't have these off-ramps off of the freeway and you got a Days Inn and you got a Holiday Inn Express and you got a Holiday Inn and you got, you know, six places that you can choose to, to, to stay in. And all in those days there were just inns. And that was only in the larger cities. In, in smaller cities there was no place to stay. And, and, and because the inns were typically not that clean and uh, lots of fleas could be in them, lots of rats could be in them, they could, could be very much have a reputation for sin and for uh, debauchery. So what Christians would do is that when these traveling preachers and teachers and pastors would be traveling through, they'd open their home up to them. That's no place for you to be staying as a Christian doing the Lord's work. It's an honor to serve the servants of the Lord. You're staying at our house tonight and they would invite them in feed them give them you know a night's sleep that was comfortable and then allow them to move on their way paul uh, that was extended to paul continually in his ministry as as well as as others but it it would appear and that uh, some of the christians in this church were in the name of love opening up their homes and providing hospitality to pastors and teachers and evangelists and preachers who were teaching error. They were teaching false doctrine, and thus they were not worthy of the hospitality that was being uh, extended to them. And so in doing this, this church has overemphasized love to the neglect of truth, and thus they've become unbiblical in their application of love. So what John is going to do is he's going to remind them that genuine love will not compromise the truth. Genuine love will never go beyond the boundaries of Scripture. It will never compromise Scripture in order to express itself. If it requires compromise to express this love, then it is no longer a godly or a genuine love. And so truth keeps the expression of our love toward others safe from just becoming this emotional, feel-good, group-hug kind of thing that, that we can end up endorsing anything and everything that's, that's, uh, that's bad or look like we're co-signing it. Now, sometimes... Uh, the body of Christ can emphasize truth to the neglect of love. And uh, the result is, is that the truth loses its attractiveness. It, it becomes a, a racket. It becomes harsh. It, it's just a noise and it's truth, but you can't fully appreciate it. And that's what Paul was addressing when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And he said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. It's just so much noise. But then there's another kind of Christian. And we all have tendencies uh, in one direction or the other. How many times through the years, you know, I've had somebody, uh, somebody will come up to me and uh, they'll look and they're just, con they are just condemned as can be. They, God hates me. I mean, they're born again. They're on their way to heaven. God hates me. I'm such a failure. I'm so rotten. I've got so far to go. I can't stand myself. How could God stand me? And all of that. And, and, uh, and I'm uh, looking at this guy and... Uh, uh, he, he's not much different from me. <laughs> but, but he has a bent, a natural bent, toward the exhortive text in the Bible. And when he reads it, that's all he reads is the exhortation. He misses all of the comfort. He misses all of the encouragement in the Bible. And I'll typically say to someone like that, I want you to start to read the Bible once again. The exhortive text, I don't want you to ignore it. That wouldn't, how, how could I say that as a pastor to somebody? But I want you to skim over that, and I want you to really focus on the encouraging passages within the Scripture, and let that be built into your life so that you're balanced. And then there's other people, all they see is the encouragement, and they need a good exhortation uh, on, on things. They're, they're too off on the other side. And so that's kind of what's happened here. And, and here's this other kind of Christian who needs to be reminded. They know all about love. It's their first reaction to any situation. 
but they need to be reminded continually of the importance of truth. Because love without truth, love taken outside of the boundaries of scriptures, the scriptures again, it ceases to be genuine love. Agape love, God's love, will always do what's best for the other person. And sometimes that's not what is easiest for the other person or what the world would define as, as love. And this woman and her family or this church needed to be reminded of this. Majoring in love, minoring in truth a little bit too much in their decision making, and it was doing uh, some damage. And they needed to return to the love being directed and governed by the truth. Now notice in verse 4, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we have received commandment from the Father. Now that blesses John's heart. He said, I I ran into some of your children, some members of your church or some members of your family, and they were walking in the truth, and it blessed my heart. And you put yourself in a person like John, and where he is, or probably marked his whole life, but certainly where he is now in life, and... uh, is an older person. I mean, what does he, what does he care about? You know, bigger and better things and all this. All that matters to him is that when he is passing off the scene, there is many Christians obeying the Word of God as there can possibly be. That's what blesses the heart of a person like John. And he said, I ran into some of your family, some of your children that were, were walking in, in this way, walking in the truth. And it brought, brought them great joy. Now he talks about some. I found some of your children uh, walking in the truth, which, which means that you know, he might have run into some that weren't walking in the truth. <laughs> That's kind of discouraging. I, but, but he doesn't focus on them. He mentions and he focuses on the ones that were walking in the truth. And I think that's a key to longevity in Christian service. I don't care what we're doing, whether we're teaching the children's ministry or, 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 or whether, whatever it might be, be doing on, on things. You have to put your focus on the people that are doing good or you're not going to make it. <laughs> and look at the, the, the glass half full kind of of people in 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 the situation and I think that's one of the reasons that John to his his dying day was absolutely uncompromising concerning the truth but he remained a gentle and a loving man all the way to the end because and didn't become bitter and angry and I hate you can't nobody walks with God anymore and it's us four and no more and this kind of, of thing never fell into that trap because he kept his eyes on the good things that were happening and there's always good things happening in anybody and certainly in the body of Christ as a whole and now I plead with you lady not as though I wrote a new commandment to you but that which we uh, have had from the beginning that we love one another so John pleads with them and and reminds them of our need to love one another if if we won't love one another as Christians then who in the world's gonna love us (laughs) you know how many people on the face of this planet would have your head tonight if they could have it? Do you know how many people in this world would marginalize every single one of us and every single one of our voices until no one could hear us beyond our backyard? There's a, there is a lot that is under the control of the devil coming against the body of Christ powerfully every single day. We've got to look out for each other. We've got to love one another in the body of of Christ and encourage one another. Nobody else is going to do it. That's a responsibility that we have. And and not just those that attend one church or another church or this, the whole body of Christ. Like John is here. He's excited. These people that are walking in the truth, these children, they don't go to, to his church or where he pastors or any of that. He's happy that anybody's walking with the Lord anywhere. He's glad for it. The second reason I think that he brings up love here in verse 5 
is that he's going to move into the theme of truth quickly and and he wants them to understand that now when he starts to emphasize the importance of truth he's not minimizing the importance of love and sometimes we can tend to think that in order to emphasize one you've got to de-emphasize the other he doesn't have to do that he so he's laying down the 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 importance of love listen don't misunderstand what i'm going to say about the truth now is me minimizing love we need to be loving and we need to love one another but this is love you say what does love look like it's just a warm feeling that just comes over you and it feels a lot like when you're eating chocolate chip cookies that come right out of the oven on a cold fall night and you know that kind of, you know that feeling right there that's when you look at somebody and you you have that that's love right there and then you go up and you just hug them isn't Christian love wonderful? That's great if I mean, in, in, but that's not what real love is. Here's, here's going to define it for us. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning that you should walk in it. And so that's the definition of uh, what love is. It is, it is an Walking according to his commandments, obeying the word of God in every situation. That is the most loving thing we can do toward other people. Even if it makes their life miserable for 48 hours or for two years. It's still love. God measures love in a different kind of way. Agape love again does what's best for the other person. Always. Eternity in, in, in mind. And so here is this church and, and compromise and overlooking uh, error or heresy, accepting anyone in anything in the hopes that they'll be impacted by our great love and, and that we're embracing you know, every kind of thing that, that uh, comes along in, in life. And that, that being love, John says, no, that's, that's not what love is. We can know that we're loving one another as we just walk a life of obedience to, to the Word of God. Now, he's going to tell them to do something. Now, beginning in, in, uh, in, he's going to tell them to do something in verses 10 and 11, a little bit later here in the letter related to the false teachers that seems anything but loving. And, and yet, it is loving. The true expression of love in any situation is to obey what God's Word tells me to do in that situation. So now he tells us how to handle the false teachers and the deceivers with love and truth. He said, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver. You call that love calling people liars? Yeah, this is a deceiver and antichrist. So the first thing, you know, uh, uh, again, the, in, in that day, just like today, there were, uh, the early church had no shortage of false teachers that claimed to be Christian and that they're teaching all kinds of things. The Judaizers, they, they uh, you know, they just trailed the Apostle Paul from city to city coming to Christians and saying, listen, you can't be a Christian without also keeping the law of Moses and, and being circumcised, keeping the Sabbath and, and being circumcised. And, and then now Paul is long dead and gone on to be with the Lord by the time John writes his letters here. Now the Gnostics have come in trying to hijack Christianity and, uh, and you know, define it as, as what they want to define it as. And until the Lord returns, there are going to be, in the words of verse 7, many deceivers that have gone out into the world. That's just the way it's going to be. And, and we're going to have to navigate in this world... We're, not just survive in this world that is full of spiritual deceivers, but God has called us to be effective for the kingdom of God in, in that same environment. And so here he's going to tell us how, how to do that. So he calls them uh, deceivers in, in, in verse uh, 7. And you say, well, that, I don't know how loving that is. It's not loving to ignore the truth about them. There's nothing wrong with making an assessment like that. 
They are religious liars, and the worst liars on the face of the earth are religious liars that hide behind religion and is a, is a way to do, to the, do their lying. The word deceivers there means ones who lead astray. So here they are, they're giving the appearance of drawing people to God, closer to God. The whole time they're drawing people away from God. And they're just deceivers, and, and John declares them to, to be what they are. Now why is that loving? Because the consequences are eternal. They're eternal. You meet a regular liar. It's not lying about heaven, hell, eternity, salvation. They're just lying about whatever, a vacuum they're trying to sell you, or an appliance or some other kind of a lie about somebody else. The worst that happens in that situation is you lose the $89 you paid for the vacuum. Or you, for some period of time, believe a lie about another person until God gets it straightened out in you. Serious enough. But those are not eternal consequences. When someone comes in and lays down a spiritual lie, a spiritual deception, the consequences can be eternal. A person can end up in hell on the basis of that. That's about as serious as it gets. Now, John, is, he's this wonderful man. And he is, again, he is the apostle of love, but he's got a backbone. You can't push him around on things. And he does not lose sight of eternity, that it's real, that it's coming, that it is forever. And it is a big, big deal to claim to represent God and then to lie about what he has said. So he calls them deceivers. You can do that in love. He did it right there. I think personally that we're way, 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 way too tolerant of false doctrine today as Christians. We just laugh at it. I mean, it's so prevalent, you just laugh at it, how goofy it is. And what are they saying now? That's crazy. I mean, what are they going to do next, you know? And, then, and, I, mean, I, and I, I have to be careful not to lose my horror over it. And, and how serious it is. See, see I'm, I'm safe. I've, I know a little bit about the Word. I mean, anybody, you know, beware lest, when you think you stand lest you fall. So, but, but I'm not going to get pulled into that stuff. But there are other people that are. And, it, and it's, it's dangerous. Notice this, there's many of them. There's no shortage of them. And there isn't. They've gone out into the whole world. And, here, and here's, here's what makes them the deceiver. And this is the big issue. Who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. And John dealt with this in, in his first epistle. They were saying that Jesus was not all God, all man, all at the same time. Uh, they didn't believe in his incarnation. They believed that he was a phantom, just a spirit, or that the spirit of Christ came on him at the time of his water baptism, beginning his public ministry, left him before the cross, the, the, the Christ spirit, this kind of thing that was being taught, all of it contrary to the apostles' doctrine. And, and so that, here's, here's how he identifies the deceiver and how you identify deceivers all the way into this age. The issue is, what are they saying about Jesus? That's the big issue. When the Jehovah Witnesses come to my door, and I learned it by experience about the first three times I met with them on my doorstep, I mean, we went all over the map. We talked about whether in the thousand-year reign it was going to be this actual soil because it's fallen and it's going to be restored. But what are there going to be weeds in the millennium? And I'd pull out, you know, my uh, tools on the Greek and would show them that uh, when Peter speaks of the the earth there and in the millennial reign, it's the actual word soil and this and this and this. And then the 144,000 and which tribe are you? Oh, that's fine. Do you want to go there? And, uh, but I don't do it anymore. <laughs> I don't have the time. So we go straight to what do you believe about Jesus? What do you have to say about Him? That's the big issue. The 144,000, you're not getting into heaven or out of heaven. The Bible's clear on it, but on, on the basis of that. 
Jesus is the issue. You go straight to what are they saying about him. That's the most important test. What do they teach about Jesus? And they were teaching wrong things about Jesus. And so John makes it very clear to them, this is a deceiver and not only a deceiver, they are an antichrist. And it's loving to identify them that way. With a, with a, with a, at, with a proper attitude but to look and say, that's what they are. Now, there's a real Antichrist coming in, in the Great Tribulation, but they are of his ranks, coming not only teaching what's false, but they are working against Christ, who he is, what he taught, what he's come to do for mankind. And so he calls them Antichrist. Then in verse 8, he says, look to yourselves that uh, we do not lose those things we have worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now, that's interesting, verse 8. Look to yourselves. There is a part of this in terms of not being deceived by false teachers or a part for every single Christian of being able to test what is true and false on our own. To know the Bible well enough on our own. It's called the working knowledge of the Bible. That I, it's all right early in our Christian walk where you say, man, you stumped me. When I was street witnessing as an early Christian, people were stumping me all the time. I said, are you going to be out here next week? I mean, you're right here by the library and I'll have an answer for you. Because I know you're wrong. I just don't know why just yet. But I'll tell you when I get back here on that. I was very effective street witnessing. But I'd, come, I'd learn and I'd come back with the answer on, on, on the thing. And, but you can't, there can't, you can't always have a pastor right there or someone to pull and say, you tell them. And, and so here's what John is saying. We have to look out for ourselves in this so that we don't, don't get deceived and then in order that, that we don't lose those things that we've worked for. Not our eternal reward. We're not going to lose our salvation in, in, in believing something that's, you know, that, that is false. I know that apostasy exists. I don't want to go into that right now. But, but he's talking about losing our reward. To get pulled off into some nonsense that is, is unimportant, that is false, it takes us out of what God has really called us to do. And Jesus, when, when He sees us, for us as Christians, the reward is going to be, uh, I, uh, to me the reward is going to be the size of the crown. Hey, look at this, i got ten of these tower things on my crown and a lot of jewels. And what do you got there? Two and a propeller. Wow, you know. You must be in the bad section of heaven, you know, compared to where I am. Like, the, the great reward is going to be for him to look us right in the eye and say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And if I cease to be faithful to what he's called me to and to the word of God, then that's going to minimize my ability to hear that. Now, some people say, You know, I don't really care. As long as I get in, I don't really care what my crown is or my reward is. Listen, if it's carnal to care about what my eternal reward is, I am more carnal than I can describe to you. I want to hear that from him. And I want the fullness of the reward. And these deceivers will pull me away from being effective for God and what he has called us uh, to. And whoever transgresses... And the word transgresses is a very, very interesting word. It means to go beyond. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If a person goes beyond what the Scriptures say then that is what the transgression is in their teaching. They go beyond what the Scriptures clearly teach. They do not abide in the doctrine of Christ no matter what they say. And those that stay within the perimeters of Scripture, they do abide um, in, in Christ. And I think it's very, very important in, in always in whatever uh, ministry environment is going on through church history, don't, those of you who God has called you to teach, don't go beyond the revelation of the Scriptures. 
Don't transgress. So much false doctrine and crazy things abound because somebody's looking to something that isn't really there, something that's beyond the boundaries, something that will put my name on the map, something that nobody else has ever seen before because it really isn't there, and, or something that makes me famous or people think that I'm really smart. Just stay within the boundaries of Scripture. Let the Holy Spirit come settle on and say amen to the old truths, but the true truths when they're taught. And I love what one man said. I don't know who it is. He said, we don't need any new truths. We need... Wait a second. This is just coming to me, so I need to work on that. It'll just be about 15 minutes. He said, we don't need any... It was two eggs... And then the brownie mix, and uh, you throw. He said, "We don't need any. We don't need." It was good. What he said, you would have really, really liked it. Oh, he said, "We don't need any new experiences." Um, no, it wasn't that. He, he, said, he said, "We don't need it. Let's try. Let, let's just try one, and and then see if they bomb, and then we can get it right." He said, "We don't need any new truths. We need." New experiences in the old truth. Rob, thank you. All right, wait a second. All right, there's nothing, really. Really, it was nothing. See, isn't it fabulous how God uses idiots? But uh, uh, here you are. I mean, why would you risk that? Why wouldn't you just leave that alone and go on? It's ridiculous. But, but so we did. So, so just stay there in that place. And then notice in verse 10, he talks to us practically about how the false teachers are to be uh, handled and, and treated. First of all, related to hospitality. If anyone, and B, Goober, Barney, uh, whoever you want to name, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, proper doctrine concerning Christ, do not receive him into your home. Now, what this is not saying, it is not saying that you can't have your unsaved brother-in-law over for dinner. That's not what it's saying there. It's not saying that you can't have your unsaved friends or family members or neighbors over for dinner. We want to be having relationships with people. It's not saying that you can't have a friend who is a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness over for dinner or a Buddhist or a Muslim over to your house for dinner. It's not saying that, but this is what it is saying. You shall not allow a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness and any other false teacher into your house to teach false doctrine and to bring that false doctrine into your house. I always address these folks on my doorstep. They never come into my home. And even when I address them on my doorstep, I make sure that my children and my grandchildren are out of earshot of what it is that's being discussed. I I talked with two Mormon missionaries yesterday afternoon on my doorstep, and uh, it was a wonderful experience um, in talking with them because, you know, I don't know everything about every false religion. But I try to know a little bit about the Bible. And they're, so they're talking with me on some things. And I said, well, you know, what, I, I just got to be frank with you. I'm, I'm a born-again Christian. And uh, from John 3:16, I'm a whosoever that has believed and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin. I have everlasting life. My past is completely forgiven. I have the greatest life now and the power of the Holy Spirit. I have eternity with God in the very presence of God forever and ever and ever in the future. And so what are you offering me? How, how can you top that uh, on the thing? And they, had, they hadn't heard that in a while on, on things because they're nice, really young, nice young guys and all. And they started to, to work on, on coming up with something that was better than what I had. And I'm just looking straight into their eyes because I want them saved. I want something to stay in their heart that produces doubt related to what it is that they're, they're in. And uh, then one of the guys, he just finally, bold as could be, uh, he, he just said, can we come in and teach your family from the Book of Mormon? Just came out and said it like that. <laughs> no, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, no, I, that's probably, probably not going to happen 
here at this house. I mean, my wife was inside, one of my daughters, two of my grandchildren. I don't think that's going to happen here, uh, you know, today. And, 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 and so, they, it, 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 and never ever give them a dime for the literature that they're selling. Now, if you have family, you're talking about what, what you're not to allow within your house. Not to allow if I have family that believes something that is spiritually false. Don't let them pray for the meal. Don't give them a position of spiritual uh, stature there in, in the place. And if they, if they have a phone or anything that goes off during the service, you just... God bless you. I, you. The person that has the phone is miserable right now. And I know that, know that feeling, so relax. Or, or it, 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 never let them start to talk. You have them over for dinner never, or over to your house or whatever. Never let them start to talk about what they believe and share that false doctrine. No wrong spiritual influence to be brought in, into our home. They're not to be given a platform to confuse or to sow air into the minds of our family, especially our children. And that goes for what comes into our house on television, too, in the form of, of air. We are not to cooperate in any way with the spreading of their air concerning our Lord who died on the cross for us, the way of salvation and the truth about Him. And anyone means anyone. So John is just telling these early Christians, stop opening up your homes and extending hospitality or support of any kind to these false teachers and thinking you are doing something loving. It is not a proper expression of love in that situation. Their love, our love, needs to be governed by truth. And it is unloving to allow them into the house to do these things because, number one, it makes them think that they're okay when what they're doing is evil. In the words of the Apostle, in just a moment. And number two, it, 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 it's unloving to do because it endangers the faith of our family. And number three, it, it confuses the unsaved that are watching these people go through the neighborhoods or do whatever and, 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 and they see us being supportive of their teaching. Then they think that what we're about and what they're about is all the same thing. That's too big of a price to pay. Now notice concerning uh, greeting them. In, in the end of verse 10, we are not to greet them, nor he who greets him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now again, concerning greeting these folks, what he is not saying is you can't say, he's not saying you can't say good morning to them. You can't say, have a nice day to them. You can't uh, say good morning to them or good afternoon to them in the hallway at work or this, this kind of thing. Agape love is polite. The Bible says it does not behave rudely. But here's what he is saying. We are never to say God bless you to them when they leave our presence. We are never to say God speed to them when they leave our presence. We have the ability as Christians, we pronounce blessing on people's lives. We are never to ask God to bless what they're doing because what they're doing is evil. As he says there in verse 11, refers to the fact that they are evil deeds. And, and so if they're leading people away from Christ, the truth in Christ and all of this, then to, to ask God's blessing uh, 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 upon them with these eternal consequences associated with the false doctrine, it's to share in their evil deeds. When I get done with somebody on my doorstep and we've talked, and I'm very, very civil. I'm very, very polite toward people in, in, in the name of, of, of the Lord. But they may say, God bless you. It was good talking to you. Um, it's nice. You, you knew a little bit about the Bible and, and that kind of thing. And if they're waiting for a God bless you from me, it never comes. Because it was good to talk with you about these things. And sometimes if it's a certain kind of situation, I'll say, listen, we've talked about a lot of important things. And, and if, if, I, if I'm right, you guys are in big, big trouble on the basis of the scriptures and I want you to think about that and think about what we've looked at in, in all and that's assuming that I've made a couple of points with them that can really stick with them and maybe maybe turn them a little bit 
So sometimes there's a great pressure just to be, they're nice, always nice people, always nice people. Say, well, God bless you. And we can never, ever uh, do that. And, and because it's unfair to them, they walk away thinking our differences are small or, or minimal. Or our children who hear us say, God bless, they think the differences are small. Our neighbors hear us pronouncing God bless, they think that we're one and the same. And we're not. And it's not the loving thing to do to anyone. John calls what they're doing evil deeds. And we don't help people by comforting them in evil deeds. You say, can you be religious and sincere in your religious beliefs and be evil? (laughs) He just, yes, you can. Because what you're doing is evil because there's a deliberate attempt to draw people away from the truth of what the Bible says. Now notice he closes here in verse 12. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink. There are a lot of things that he still wants to write, but it's better to speak face to face. Things can be misunderstood in letters. He said, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister, talking about where he's writing from, I think the church that he's writing from, all the people here, uh, they greet you. Amen. And so he closes the letter out. Again, the single great lesson of the book is that our love must be governed by truth in order for it to be genuine does what is best for the other person even if it's hard love for that other person it must be governed by the truth the truth keeps our love safe it keeps it holy it keeps it helpful toward other people all right the worship team will come forward we'll take partake of communion